firing up the grill, having a picnic, going to a game, or the beach? Stop by Acme Markets for juicier Lancaster brand meats for the grill, fresher cut fruits and vegetables, tastier desserts from our bakery, and all of your snack needs. Mix, match, and save on fresh blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, or strawberries. Six-ounce packages are buy one, get one free. And Purdue chicken drumsticks, thighs, or whole frying chickens, three pounds or more, only 99 cents a pound. Acme, your new favorite local supermarket. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Wake Up Mission Show with your host, Shalene Nightingale and Randy D. Today is Tuesday, January 19th, 2016. Uh, today is Truth Tuesday, and we are going to be discussing the Steamboat Sultana disaster. I saw a fascinating documentary about this well, the week before last, I believe it was. Well, anyways, I'd never heard of it until um, you know, it was one of those nights, um, slipped through the channels, you know, like the Bruce Springsteen song, you know, 57 channels and nothing on. And I saw that and it was on PBS and I was like, okay, well, this is something semi quasi educational. I guess I'll check this out. And it was actually, it was a, it was a fascinating um, episode and they did a really good job of uh, explaining uh, this, this uh, particular disaster uh, but before we get into it, uh, right before we came on the air, I saw this uh, bulletin go across and, um, well, got to, uh, you know, the Sultana disaster happened uh, like right after, right, at, right after the end of the War of Northern Aggression, uh, so that can wait. Um, found saw this bulletin. It's from uh, Anon Radio. Uh, apparently, the FBI is ramping up their operations in Oregon, so... Uh, the, this is uh, part of their broadcast, so go ahead, uh, check this out, and got some more uh, on that. But uh, th- this is uh, a little more important than his than a history lesson from then. Hey guys, what's going on? Sincere here with who is in, who is com and Anon Radio Live. Listen, guys, we have a breaking report. It's happening right now in Oregon. We know we just talked to you last night, uh, Brandon, but you have some updates for us. So as I promised you, we go live anytime you want to go live. What's going on, Brandon? Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, so here's what we got going on in Oregon. Um, We got information this morning uh, from within the hospital in Burns, Oregon, uh, with several different sources actually uh, reached out to us with some concerns that the FBI has come in this morning and quartered off 
uh, some rooms to set up as uh, surgical rooms in the hospital. They're bringing in surgical teams, uh, their own surgical teams. They have requested uh, blood supplies, trauma, trauma equipment and supplies, as well as uh, extra blankets and things like that. They are also requesting that the life flight uh, be on standby on the ground in Burns, Oregon, as soon as possible. Okay, when when you say as soon as possible, um, I, I want the, the listeners to get an idea of what you mean by as soon as possible. Are we talking about tomorrow or are we talking about today? Well, we couldn't get an ETA on that. Um, it's pretty hush-hush. Um, the, the three people that reached out to us, were they were actually in tears when we spoke to them on the phone. They're scared. They're upset. Um, there's obviously afraid of lashback on jobs and things like that. But uh, as soon as possible, I mean, you know, as soon as they can get that bird there on the ground, um, I'm not quite sure where it would come from as far as maybe Bend, Oregon. Um, but what this says to me is that they're, they're ramping up for a potential situation. They're ramping up for a potential engagement. Oh, no, no, no. It, it, it absolutely says that. I mean, you guys have put out your articles of resolution. You've gone to the compound. You've confronted them without brandishing your weapons. You've talked to the sheriff. You've uh, pleaded with the judge. You've tried every avenue of civil communication that's possible. They have not reached back across the aisle to have that communication with you. And now they're ramping up and requesting blood, helicopters, and cordoning off a, a, a whole side of a hospital. So to me, that's ramping up. Absolutely. And we've also got reports from, um, from our, our teams on the ground there, as well as community members that as of this morning, through last night and this morning, there is a huge increase in FBI presence in the community with unmarked vehicles. Um, they're running around town in tactical gear meaning bulletproof steel plate vests, assault rifles, things like that. They're making that presence known. Um, it's creating a very much of a concern in the community, and they're, they're getting upset. Okay, yeah, that's, that's a reason to absolutely get upset. Um, is there, I don't know your connection with the community there. I know that you guys have been integrating, and these guys have, you know, the community has been warm and in, inviting you guys in. Um, you know, is there anyone that you know in the community within uh, Burns? I know you guys are a few miles away, but anyone there that uh, has surveillance on the situation in town? Oh, absolutely. We still have a lot of team members there. We have a lot of people there on the ground. Um, you know, there some are known in town, some are not. You know, we have them uh, okay placed throughout the entire county, and but we have a lot of people there on the ground, and that's where. A lot of our intel is coming from there, but a lot of the locals have reached out to us with the inside type information. Okay. Now, what is the plan? I mean, I, I'm sure you guys, you know, of course you knew that it, there, this was always a possibility. Um, so I, I'm sure you guys didn't come to this situation, of course, you know, blind. But, you know, given the, the, the factor that now you've had three people reach out, the, the tensions are extremely high at this point. What uh, What's the game plan? What's the next step? Well, the first thing we need to do is get this information out in the public so the FBI and all, all the authorities over there know exactly what we know, and they know that uh, we know what they're up to and we're on to, the, on to what they're doing, and they need to stop it right now. Um, if they try to engage with those guys, we are bringing more, more manpower in by the hundreds as we speak, and we will make sure those guys up there aren't hurt. Um, and what they need to do is they need to back down and back off 
and enter into some dialogue with these people and come up with a resolution that's peaceful and not uh, peaceful meaning not ordering blood and setting up your own trauma rooms to take care of FBI agents. Uh, that's a problem. Yeah, that's an absolute problem. Um, I, is there any contact numbers that you have with any of the FBI agents there on the ground, or even better, um, as as you know, you know the sheriff and the judge. Of course, they're in contact with the FBI. Has there been anyone that's reached out to those uh, those folks there in town? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we just spoke to the undersheriff of Hardy County, and he said not for us not to worry about it because that was just standard operating procedures. Um, this thing's been going on for three weeks, and they're just now implementing a standard operating procedure. That is an outright lie. Yeah, that's an absolute outright lie. I think uh, given your background and given mine, too, we both know about standard operating procedures. Right, correct, correct. You know, and, and um, you know, I, I encourage people to call the sheriff's department, you know, and that I can give you that number. Um, yes, uh, do you have that number there right now? Absolutely. It's area code 541-573-6156. And I implore and encourage everyone to call the sheriff's office and, and tell them that they're not okay with those type of actions. The other concern that, that is an issue is that if they're going to quarter off portions of that very small, already small hospital, um, that's going to that's gonna prevent services for local people. You know, they're, they got that quartered off for their own law enforcement use. Um, it's a very small facility as it is. So God forbid a car crash or something like that happened, but now we have a situation where it's going to limit the services for the locals. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and I think it's uh, our listeners need to know, all of this is avoidable. All of this is highly unnecessary because, as I stated in the beginning, you guys have been civil in your approach. You have reached out. You, uh, As a matter of fact, the, the FBI agents at the, the gate where you were at the compound there, they actually... Uh, they engaged in dialogue to the point where they started to get comfortable after a half an hour. And with that being said, I mean, I know everything is not uh, peaches and cream, but with that being said, you would think that there would be some kind of dialogue that has started to happen or someone higher up in the FBI chain of command because so many of you guys went there by, you know, literally the dozens and in peacefully requested to speak to someone higher before it would escalate into something like this. Right, absolutely. We, we've we been having that dialogue and trying to keep that open dialogue and letting them know, hey, let's, let's, let's come up with a peaceful resolution. And we've been stonewalled. The community's been stonewalled. The citizens there have been stonewalled. It's just really sad. And, and you know, we talked about this last night about how they run two narratives. This is a perfect example. They have the narrative that they've been showing to the public by saying, oh, we're only here to support the sheriff's office. Well, that's a lie because the sheriff has come out in public and said in his town hall meeting last week that he has given up the reins to the FBI and they're leading this investigation. And I don't see the sheriff's office up there cordoning off the hospital. I see the FBI doing it. I see a huge increase in FBI agents in town showing a presence and, and a command force. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I have a question for you. I'm not sure if you've gotten this far along. I know you're just, you know, digesting all the information and it's coming in and live right now. Have you got a chance to go uh, up there to the ranch? Um, I know you guys are doing, you know, the perimeter thing now, but have you had a chance to run into Ammon and maybe have a few words with him? 
Um, I sent him a text message to, waiting for a callback from him to, to bring him up to speed. Um, I did talk to him first thing this morning, just my morning update, but that was before we got any of this information. So. Okay. All right. Excellent. And so it is, as soon as he can uh, get in the loop, that would ac- absolutely be great because uh, it, it doesn't sound like these guys have anything good uh, planned for you, you know, for you guys out there. And, you know, our prayers are with you, but our support is also with you. If there's anything that we can do, you know that you can call this number at any time and you're going live because we're not going to let this happen. This should not be happening in America uh, when you have good American citizens that uh, that follow the Constitution, um, uh, many of them with a law enforcement background, uh, good people that are saying we have grievances with the government, not local government, but federal government, meaning there is no higher level to go than federal government. So... That means that those grievances must be addressed, and if those grievances are addressed any time in the future after this conversation with force, then we know exactly who's in the wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And and we we kind of had a uh, you know we knew that if there might be some inside force within the county with Judge Grafty, uh, we do we we were also uh, contacted this morning by a couple businesses in the area saying that they were told. If they served us, anyone associated with Ammon or the the uh, the organizations that are there in the community, like us and others, uh, ba- their exact words were bad things will happen to them, and they should not serve us. And that was to the hotels and the restaurants. Um, I think what's happening, what we're seeing is we're we're getting close to uncovering some stuff. We uncovered some more information this morning on some corruptness, um, and you guys will be the first ones to get that information uh, that we get out when we have it solidified. But I think what's happening is the pressure's on these guys now that we're uncovering these things. So now they're grasping at straws and they're moving to threat-type tactics to intimidate the townspeople again to push us away so we don't find anymore. That's not going to happen. We're not going anywhere. No, absolutely you're not going anywhere, and you shouldn't go anywhere. I, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, I, I'm very certain, you know, I'm, I'm actually, you know, uh, you probably don't know my background, but I, I worked for the military. I worked for the government for for a few years and I worked at a pretty high level with a security clearance and I'm going to tell you now what goes on behind those closed doors is about 10 to 20 years ahead of what's going on in reality and the same thing is true for the FBI so when I say that I know they're listening to this conversation and they've heard the other conversations they're listening so now is a great time to send a message. I mean, if they want to listen, let them listen to the real right now. What do you have to say to them, Brandon, to let them know that this isn't going to go down the way they think it's going to go down? Well, first of all, you're on notice. You know, you're on notice that you're in the public eye. There's people that are watching you now. The media is there, and we're going to make this public, and we're going to let allow people to watch. And and um, you know, the the people. This is in the eye of the the, the court of public opinion. And they need to make sure uh, they follow, you know, their the constitutional basis. They need to follow, follow themselves in a uh, uh, conduct themselves, excuse me, in a um, you know in a, an appropriate manner. No one has even talked to or reached out to any of these people at the uh, refuge. So why are we ramping up a, uh, escalation of force when there's been no dialogue whatsoever? And I know the sheriff has said in the past we don't negotiate or talk to 
criminals who want to get their way or however he worded that. But we discussed this last night and how we left the show last night was they just did that with terrorists in Iran. So they need to engage in conversation with these guys up at the refuge because I'm going to tell you, if they engage with them, it will start a civil war. Yeah, yeah. It it it, it, it won't start... Um, I, I think what they're thinking is they're going to walk in with all their tactical gear and their bulletproof vests and uh, armored vehicles and undercover vehicles and just take over the situation. But they don't understand... Um, they're not dealing with a normal element. They don't understand they're dealing with people who are highly trained and then people who are highly patient on top of it. If your last few weeks there haven't proven your patience, then they're highly mistaken. So if they think that this is going to be the standoff um, that they're hoping to have and, and be able to paint the picture that you know they want to paint for the public eye, I think they have another thing coming. I think they should really reconsider their actions and probably just have several seats and, and really do exactly what you're saying and, and come to that table, sit down, be grown men instead of little babies throwing temper tantrums with guns and, and, and really resolve this in the way that it needs to be resolved. This is a simple land dispute. A simple land dispute, meaning a few words and a few documents can fix it. If bullets start flying over something that could have been fixed with a piece of paper, then we know exactly who's in the wrong, and that would be the United States government. Absolutely. They, they're taking an aggressive manner. There's been no sign of aggression from our side whatsoever. I mean, we've even so much as brought them coffee, you know, food, trying to show them we're not there. For, we're not there to create a fight. We're not there for a fight. We're there to mediate. And there's been zero signs of aggression from our side or from the gentleman at the refuge. The only acts of aggression as of now, has been with the FBI. Wow. Well, uh, Brandon, listen, If is there anything else? I know you. we have to let you go because you have to get back to the important task of what's going on now. Is there? We'll follow up with you later on tonight, too, or whenever you're ready. You have my personal line. You call me and let me know when you're ready. I'll make myself available for the rest of the evening. Um, is there anything that you have left? Uh, to tell any any of us right now so that we can just be fully up to date. Um, we information as quickly as we get it, disseminate that once we have verified that it's factual and accurate information. Um, we are putting out a, a, an all call to action. Um, if you have the ability to get over to Burns, Oregon, get a hold of me directly and I will get you plugged in. Uh, we need as many people there as possible on the ground on top of uh, all the people we already have. Um, we need, we're not even calling for arms, we're just calling for people. If people are there and they can witness and, and be a voice, that's what we need. That's a very good idea, Brandon. Again, listeners, everybody that's out there, Brandon, the Idaho 3 percenters that are standing with uh, those in Oregon at the refuge right now, they are not calling for an all-out army to come, but they're calling for every available uh, person that's out there to come to to stand in solidarity, to be a witness to what's going on in the presence alone, in the eyes alone, can deter what these guys have planned. And and I'm saying what these guys have planned because I understand how this works. I know you do too, Brandon. Not trying to fear monger, but this is critical and this is real. This is right now, and people need to understand how important it is. 
Absolutely. And this is not fear mongering. This is information that we're getting directly from the community. It, it, it's factual. It's, it's verified. Um, the only thing that we haven't put eyes on yet, and because it's from what our understanding, it's not there yet, is the life flight helicopter. Um, you know, the, the only reason that they would take these sort of measures is because they're ramping up for an engagement. Um, when the undersheriff tells me or, or tells tells one of the other Pacific Patriot founders that this is standard operating procedure not to worry about it, uh, that's a real concern because we've been there for three weeks and this hasn't been a standard operating procedure. So you got you got to read between the lines and see see what's going on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, is there anything else that you you want to give us? Uh, if you know, if not, I'll go ahead and let you get back to you know handling the business. I know you have a lot to do, and we'll set up a, a you know we'll talk off air and set up a time for later. Sure. The biggest thing to go you're not sure how, how to go about doing that you can go to our website which is www.iiipercentidaho.org and you can hit the contact us that's an email that comes directly to me in my phone and I will get you to where you need to go we'll get you plugged in and it's not about a call to arms it's about a call for help um, you know every red-blooded American who thinks this is wrong and how this is going down and the, the overreach of the federal government is happening right now in Burns Oregon and we need to take a stand whether that's build a human wall, have a human wall of witnesses, whatever it needs to be, we need people there. Well, I tell you firsthand, just before we get off air, that reminds me of something. Um, you're absolutely right about the human wall. For all, our list for all the listeners out there, listen, if you go on Google right now and you type in Desire Projects, Desire Projects in New Orleans, if you read down the Wikipedia article, you're going to find a section in there where it talks about how the police officers and the federal government brought in 250 armed men, a tank, and helicopters. When they did that, the residents of Desire Projects came into the street, many of them children, most of them children. They came into the street, they provided a human barricade, and they sent the police officers, all 250 men, the helicopters, and the tanks back the other way, and they weren't able to complete their mission. So guys, if you want to know how important it is just to have your body there, just bring your body there and stand in solidarity with these people because they really need your support, and this is a cry for help right now because... These times are getting critical, and we can't let the federal government just walk into a situation and handle it however they want to without at least trying to handle it in a peaceful manner. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of split decisions out there in, among the community, uh, you know, nationwide and worldwide as far as if you agree with Ammon, how he, how he occupied the building. It doesn't matter at this point. People need to really understand, even if you think he's in the wrong, even if you think he's in the wrong, he's still, he's still afforded his due process rights, and they haven't even had to try to have a conversation with him before they want to escalate the violence. And none of us would like that in our home. None of us would like that done to us. So it's, it's a mute point on what you think of Ammon or how he uh, went about what he did. The point is, is they're there. We need to keep them safe. And they are, should be treated as, as human beings and afforded the same rights we all want, period. Hey, that's that's I can't end it any better. Listen, Brandon, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, coming on and giving us an update. Our prayers are with you. We stand with you, and we'll definitely be on standby, waiting for more information. Sounds good. Thanks for your help, and thanks for getting the message out. Hey, never a problem. We'll talk to you shortly. Okay.
Alrighty, so that's the latest of what's going on in Oregon. Uh, if you can help, if you can get there, then by all means, please do so. And please go look up uh, the information they um, they they had given out. Uh, the Desire Project New Orleans and Three uh, Percenter Idaho dot com. I think it was. I was trying to jot that down. Uh, after he said that, I, I didn't know that was coming up. So. That's the latest in uh, Oregon. <clears throat> and, and speaking of that, um, I saw this article uh, from Oath Keepers uh, earlier today. It's, the article is a new revelation about Waco, uh, and it was written by Elias Alias. I don't know if that's a person's real name or, or what, but um, this is something to consider. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, get into this article, and we will be getting to the story of the Sultana later, but um, we'll kind of have to get to this first. Um, while, while, quote, while the Bureau of Land Management is taking it on the chin in the western states, the current occupation of the Mile Higher National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon has prompted Oath Keepers founder and president Stuart Rhodes to issue a cautionary warning, which is going viral across America. And uh, this is the uh, quote, uh, or this is what he says, quote, warning to U.S. military and federal Leos, do not follow orders to Waco Ammon Bundy occupation or risk civil war. And of particular interest to the Elias alias um, is Stewart's use of the name Waco. On April 29th, uh, in 20, uh, April, I'm sorry, April 19th in 2016, uh, well, we'll see about this. The nation will reflect once again on Waco. The date will mark the 23rd anniversary of one of the most cruel, insane, and even demonic actions ever perpetrated by the U.S. government upon its own citizens. It is not only cruel and insane event done by the govern, government to the governed, but it is one of the most horrendous. Uh, as an older man, I recall seeing the burning of that church in Texas while at a restaurant in Georgia. The entire restaurant was glued to the TV screen in disbelief. All we heard was that the church had been molesting little children and manufacturing illegal drugs. That, that a sickened nation would later learn, was a pack of lies made up by the ATF and presented to the Pentagon in hopes of getting military aid and resolving the standoff, which resulted from the botched raid on the church. The church had been assaulted by the ATF in a very stupid raid to garner support for the ATF's increased budget request due before Congress, a fact we learned in retrospect from the Dallas Morning News. And as it turns out, the ATF had notified the press that there would be a newsworthy event at Waco, and the ATF actually requested media coverage. Why that? Why? Well, they felt the need, the ATF felt they needed something big uh, in, quote, the news to push through their requested budget increases. And so goes the logic of government agencies. Because government agencies, as our nation's founders well knew by their very nature, become ruthless infrastructure mechanisms of self-perpetuation. So Waco has become an undying testament to the inherent abusive nature of government. The recognition of that nature by our founders has much to do with why there is a Bill of Rights attached to the Constitution. But the ATF could not care less about the original intent of the founders. No, no, no. 
The ATF marches to the beat of its own drums, fully well knowing that according to the Constitution, the agency does not even have any legitimate authority to exist, much less the authority to murder scores of women and children and horrible fiery deaths over some alleged, quote, gun violations. My God, the document says shall not be infringed. And all the ATF does is infringe, and it cares not one whit about yours or my unalienable rights or our constitutional protections as American citizens. Nope. The ATF is hell-bent on tormenting anyone who would dare stand up for the fuller meaning of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. But while most readers here already know such truths, I would like to invite everyone to carefully view a movie. And there, there is a link. This is posted on our website, uh, by the way, uh, thewakeupmissionshow.com, as well as our Facebook page, The Wake Up Mission Radio Show. And um, I, uh, when I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, maybe uh, yeah, I'll um, upload this file, but it's like an hour and 49 minutes. Um, and we don't have the technical capabilities to upload something, uh, a file that big. Well, maybe we do. Um, it, it would just take a lot of work, and uh, I don't want to do it. I've got a, uh, you know, again, I've got a business to run. You know, this radio show cuts into my uh, money-making, um, my way of paying my bills. So I'm not going to do it. If you want to watch the movie, go to the link, watch it. Well, anyways, watching it, um, you're, you're going to learn, uh, as each time the author says he does, and it uh, goes on to say, those who have not seen this owe it to themselves to inform themselves the ghastly truth, truth of the outright evil and domestic terror perpetrated by the ATF on a church full of good American citizens. And the movie reveals the government's feeble and vain attempts to cover up the ATF's sins in congressional hearings. And after watching it, reflect upon what um, um, uh, Mike Vandenberg's famous statement, no more free Wacos. And then... One will more fully understand why Stuart Rhodes alluded to Waco in his open letter to the military and enforcement agents who are being pulled into a possible confrontation with American citizens in Burns, Oregon. Um, now, uh, just yesterday, uh, you know, those of you that listen regularly, you know, we have a, a regular contributor uh, on uh, Tree of Liberty Thursdays, Michael C. School. Well, he and I were talking on the phone yesterday about um, uh, some unrelated matter, uh, un unrelated things uh, that we're working on. And he, he mentioned Waco and he said, do you know why they were really, why they really did that? You know what they did, you know, as far as murdering all those people down there um, on national TV. Turns out that uh, the Branch Davidians were practicing common law. Du jour law, constitutional law, you know, the laws that the founding fathers of this nation intended, not this illegal corporate de facto law that's been in place since 1871. Look up the Corporation Act. Don't take my word for it. Do your own damn research. Since you um, can't get off um, the computer, you know, use it for something useful besides complaining and whining. Well, anyways, that's uh, that, that, that kind of ties in with um, you know what's going on in Burns, Oregon, as well as Ruby Ridge. Now, 
that I heard through the grapevine, you know, on many occasions for more than one person, the thing that happened at Ruby Ridge uh, with, uh, what was it, Randy Weaver, you know, they went out there and they murdered his wife and uh, I think one of his kids or a couple of his kids, they, they murdered uh, some people out there. Well, what I heard, and I can't verify it right now because I've got too many tabs open, but they were trying to get him, you know, somebody either from the either an ATF or an FBI thug kept pestering that guy to sell them some weapons. You know, they were trying to set him up for something. Well, his property probably had some minerals they wanted, you know, some senator wanted to sell to the Chinese way back when. I guess that was, well, I don't know about the Chinese. I guess that's before um, the illegal de facto corporate regime that um, has been occupying Washington, D.C. for the last several decades. Uh, it was before they were borrowing money from the Chinese, I guess. But anyways, wouldn't surprise me if there was minerals on that guy's land that somebody, um, uh, a public servant, wanted. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look that up. Maybe that'll be something for another True Tuesday. But anyways, that's what um, that's what that's what Michael had mentioned, and um, just knowing how he does research, you know, just you know, from the times that he's been on the show and uh, personal conversations we have had. When he tells me something, I pretty much take it as the gospel. The man knows what he's talking about. So you want to take your country back, then you have got to go to Citizens Action Networks, bone up on constitutional common du jour law. That is the real law. Right now we are under maritime law, admiralty law, by a foreign corporation, by foreign corporations, foreign entities. The American Bar Association is a foreign entity. The court system, you know, the um, uh, judicial branch of this country and the legislative and the executive branches, uh, for that matter, they're all, uh, you know, infiltrated by lawyers or attorneys. They all, when they took the bar uh, exam and passed the bar exam and signed whatever the hell it was they signed, the American Bar Association is a foreign entity. It is not constitutional. So um, do your research on that. Don't take my word for it. Do your research. Anyways, let's get into some more um, uh, news. Uh, a federal judge rules against Obama on executive privilege for the Fast and Furious. You know, that same organization that we were just talking about that, that's going to determine whether or not you can own firearms and the ones that murdered all those people in Waco and Ruby Ridge and God knows where else. And well, anyways, um, you know, they're the ones that were running guns to um, the drug cartels down in Mexico. And I've seen bits and pieces uh, that uh, the federal government has all, was also running guns over to um, Libya. Uh, I guess that's going to be Hillary Clinton's cross to bear. Well, anyways, um, uh, just, uh, well, it was just today. A federal judge ruled um, that pres that this supposed president, Barack Hussein Obama, cannot use executive privilege to present prevent Congress from viewing records on Operation Fast and Furious. Well, Congress is going to view it, and that's basically like the fox viewing the hen house. 
if you ask me. Um, and you know what? It, you know, let thousands of firearms cross the border into Mexico. Well, U.S. District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who was uh, nominated by this supposed president, um, said the administration had to release the documents that it was withholding, uh, citing executive privilege. And she wrote in her decision that the relevant information already made public by this so-called Justice Department has mitigated the impact of any further disclosures because any damage resulting from deliberations has already been self-inflicted. And she was not uh, questioning this supposed president's executive privilege claim in itself, but that it is rendered invalid by what the so-called Justice Department has already released. And uh, that means that the regime has to hand over to the congressional regime attorney-client privilege material, attorney work product, private information, law enforcement sensitive material, or foreign policy sensitive material. And this lawsuit goes back to 2012 to a June 2012 vote in the House of Supposed Representatives to hold then-Attorney General Eric Holder in contempt of Congress for not handing over the records. And the uh, ATF uh, launched, they launched this in 2009, and it lasted until 2011. Well, I bet. I bet it's going on right now as I'm reading about this. And they lost thousands of firearms as a result, two of which were linked to the 2010 murder of uh, a Border Patrol agent in Arizona. And uh, this regime can appeal the ruling, but it's unclear if they're going to do so. And let's not, let's not uh, gloss over that not only was there a border patrol agent murdered, um, a lot of people in Mexico was murdered. Uh, I saw this meme, uh, posted it last week. It was some beautiful young woman. She looked like an actress or a model or something. You know, she was murdered by one of those guns. Um, can't remember her name now, but a really beautiful, attractive girl. Well, she's dead now, thanks to those ATF thugs. Well, let's see. What else? Uh, da 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 Okay, well, we've got a bunch of other stuff. Um, oh, let's see. And, and all the articles uh, are, are posted on our website and on our Facebook page. If you want to read any of this stuff, um, you know, make yourself useful. Go read it since, uh, you know, uh, you, you just sit in front of a computer and complain. You know, educate yourself. Well, anyways, um, the refugee crisis, this is from World Net Daily. Uh, this was just published, uh, I guess, last night uh, by Leo Hohmann, H-O-H-M-A-N-N. Uh, quote, refugee crisis, just precursor to a much bigger event. Um, and the founder of the World Economic Forum, uh, which is going to hold its annual meeting this weekend in Davos, Switzerland, is predicting that falling oil prices could worsen the migrant crisis and bring chaos to Europe. Well, hell, chaos is already in Europe, thanks to people like Angela Merkel. Uh, Klaus Schwab told Bloomberg News, quote, Look how many countries in Africa depend depend um, on oil depend on oil exports for their income. Now just imagine one billion inhabitants. Imagine they all move north. So it could be that the present refugee problem we have in Europe is just a precursor of what could come if you add, in addition, a possible water crisis. So I'm very concerned that the lowering of commodity prices leads to substantial social breakdown in a number of countries. Schwab said, also said the Federal Reserve and other elite decision makers, yeah, elite, 
kiss my ass, you bunch of rap bastards, um, are moving in, quote, uncharted territory. And the theme of this year's conference, is, which is set, set for this weekend, January 20th to 23rd, to the 23rd, is, quote, the fourth industrial revolution as the world prepares to deal with mass replacement of human labor with robots and other technology. A net decrease of 5 million jobs will be lost to robots by 2020, according to a WEF study, which was released yesterday. And Schwab said leaders should not underestimate the impact of lower commodity prices or the vulnerability of some countries to foreign exchange exposure. And he goes on to say, I'm positive for the developed world, but I foresee the potential for quite substantial shocks. You're seeing uncharted territory. We don't know. We make a decision, but we don't know actually what the consequences are. I would say we were living in times of unexpected consequences, whatever your decision. You don't know exactly what will happen, so we're not completely in control of what is happening. And this also leads to the erosion of the trust towards decision makers. Oh, really? You think? That happened. That ship sailed a long time ago, dude. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the refugee crisis, if refugees, uh-huh, right, if not dealt with wisely, has the potential to bring chaos and unimaginable change to Europe. You know, like Sweden, you know, rape capital of the world now, thanks to all the um, jihadis. Um, and look what happened in Germany, and they're still trying to cover that up. Well, Schwab goes on to say, quote, I think we have to redefine the word refugee. Okay. To make sure that those who are really in need find the necessary protection, but certainly we have to look what to do with those who are more economic refugees. I do not have a recipe. But I know we have to protect those. It's uh, it's one of our European values. Oh, so that's who you are. It's not who we are. Okay, whatever. And this is having a heart for other people. I am torn myself because I would like to help those people as much as possible. All right, well, go let them live in your backyard then. On the other hand, I am very concerned what the final impact on populations will be. Oh, bullshit. Uh, you're in on that uh, sustainability agenda 23, agenda 21, uh, reduce the global population to 500 million because all of us useless, because this is your plan and it doesn't belong to all of us useless eaters, right? Oh, and speaking of uh, her, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said over the weekend she feared the refugees crisis will, quote, tear the European Union apart. And she blamed nationalist attitudes for the fissures in German society. Oh, my ass. The crisis is jeopardizing the, quote, very core of the European Union, uh, added the EU's migration commissioner. No, Angela Merkel, you created this problem. What nationalist attitudes, you open the door, and your people are suffering for your actions, you stupid bitch. Um, they've already, the government has welcomed 1.1 million migrants from the Middle East and Africa, you know, because they don't have to live there, live with them, or live among them, or run the gauntlet of a bunch of perverts um, groping and attacking uh, women that are out trying to, you know, celebrate New Year's. I bet Merkel has, you know, Merkel, you and your cronies, you've got armed protection. And her popularity has plummeted. Well, really, you think? As Germany has been hit by a historic crime wave. Oh, wow, who saw that coming? Uh, Muslim refugees perpetrated hundreds of sexual assaults on German we German women at New Year's Eve parties in Cologne. Oh, I just said that. 
And she's facing a backlash, not just from, quote, far-right opponents, but from her supporters as well, and called Europe vulnerable and the fate of the euro, quote, directly linked to resolving uh, this migrant crisis, quote, highlighting the risk of, at the very least, serious economic turbulence, if not a formal dismantling of EU installations. And Germans are also getting little help from the EU co-founder of France, whose leader fear a rising anti-immigrant national front, or from Britain, which is embroiled in its own debate on whether to quit the EU altogether. And efforts to engage Turkey's help have proved unfruitful, as Istanbul has shown little interest in preventing migrants from reaching Europe. Huh. That's kind of like Mexico and Central America, and um, uh, they, they just say, oh, there's there's that train that goes uh, to Estadios Uninos. Get on it. Well, anyways, German and EU officials are warning that without a sharp drop in migrant arrivals or a big increase in help from other EU nation states, Germany could shut its borders. And with Merkel's conservative allies in Bavaria demanding she halt the mainly Muslim, quote, refugees, Ahead of regional elections in March, her finance minister delivered a veiled threat to EU counterparts of what that Wolfgang Schauble said in meetings with fellow EU finance ministers in Brussels, quote, many think this is a German problem, but if Germany does what everyone expects, then we'll see that it's not a German problem, but a European one. Well, you know what, uh, y'all can keep that problem over there in Europe, and uh, I guess that's who y'all are. Don't you come to me. Don't come to me for help. And that goes for everybody. Don't come to me for help. We tried to warn people for years and years and years and years, going on over a decade now. Um, nobody would listen. Tinfoil hats, conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, hey. How are you seeing? And speaking of that, uh, you know, with the uh, so-called refugee crisis, I don't have a lot of faith in this. Uh, the Supreme Court is going to have the, the final say on the legality of um, this so-called president, Barack Hussein Obama's executive amnesty. And they agreed to hear the case today, um, and it's appealing uh, the Fifth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals' November decision to keep in place a district court's ruling blocking the amnesty programs moving forward. Um, and you know, we all know what uh, what he did. Um but according to Reuters, the case will be argued in the first half of the year with an expected ruling in June. So everybody, everybody hold your breath till June, um, and it will decide the final outcome in Texas and 25 states' lawsuits seeking to block the uh, regime's executive amnesty programs. And so far, the states have been successful at the district and appeals court level. Well, we're going to see... Um, see if this supposed Supreme Court's on the take or not uh, come June. So everybody stay tuned for that. Um, and, of course, you know, the states and Republicans, I ain't got no use for them, uh, have argued that uh, the regime's executive amnesty is an unconstitutional overreach of executive authority. And the regime maintains this within its rights to shield millions from deportation and grant them work permits. Well, we'll see. I don't feel real good about uh, the way the you know, the so-called Supreme Court's going to rule. Um, 
And let's see what else. Okay. What else? <laughs> well, you all know that, um, you know, just as we were talking about, uh, you know, what's going on in Europe about the um, uh, crisis that uh, the the elitist over there created for the people to live in as far as the invasion, uh, the Muslim invasion, you know, the, the second coming, if you will, of the Ottoman Empire. Well, you know, the Britain has been talking about, you know, they're going to ban Donald Trump. Well, you know what? Good luck with that problem, Britain, because you got overran. Um, maybe that's the Sharia law coming out of you. Sorry. You know, where's Winston Churchill when you need him? When, where's the RAF when you need him? Where's General Montgomery when you need him? Well, that was another world and uh, another time ago when um, people actually had balls and got out and fought and did stuff. Well, anyways, uh, uh, deja vu is not an English word, but it's French. And However, the word immediately springs to mind when hearing about yet another Western politician or Islam critic whom some British politicians want to ban from entering the country. And, well, Donald Trump is now in the company of Pamela Geller, uh, Robert Spencer, and Gert Wilders. Um, and uh, he actually wrote the article. Both Pamela, Robert, and myself have been banned from entering the UK. In my case, it happened in February of 2009, and two high, high, supposedly highly respected members of the British House of Lords, Lady Caroline Cox and Lord Malcolm Pearson, had invited me to show my 2008 documentary, Fitna, to members of the House in a conference room of the Parliament Building in Westminster. And it's a movie juxtaposing Quranic verse calling for violence with footage of terrorist attacks and other violent deeds um, that they inspired. Well, uh, Fitna, as well as my view that Islam, rather than religion, is primarily a totalitarianism, totalitarian, God, totalitarian political ideology aiming for world domination, has resulted in several death threats against, against my person. I'm on the death list of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Pakistani Taliban. And since 2004, I've been living in, living under round-the-clock police protections, but I have a mission. Speak the truth about Islam. However, a Pakistani-born Islamic member of the House of Lords, one Nazir Ahmed, demanded that uh, the then-British Labour government ban me from entering the UK, and he threatened that he would personally mobilize 10,000 Muslims to pre prevent me from entering the upper house. The government complied and had me banned. Though a member of the Dutch parliament invited by British colleagues, I was locked up in a detention room upon arrival at Heathrow. Three hours later, I was put on the next flight to Amsterdam. And the British authorities said that my presence in the UK would pose a genuine, present, and sufficiently serious threat to one of the fundamental interests of society. My statements as expressed in FITNA and elsewhere were said to, quote, threaten community harmony, and therefore public security in the UK. And Lord Ahmed boasted of his victory in the Pakistani media, and he termed the decision a, quote, victory for the Muslim community. However, I challenged the ban before the British Asylum and Immigration Tribunal, and on October 12, 2009, the tribunal overturned the ban. And in March 2010, I returned to London and showed my movie to my colleagues in Westminster. There were no incidents and no disturbances of Britain's, quote, fundamental interest, community harmony, or public security. The ban served but one goal. It was an attempt to shut me up for speaking the truth about Islam.
Yesterday, Pamela Geller wrote on this website that in June of 2013, she and Robert Spencer, too, were banned from the UK because their presence was not conductive to the public good and a, quote, threat to security of our society. And it sounded eerily familiar, as did the arguments of those who want Donald Trump to be banned from Britain for advocating a temporary moratorium on Muslim immigration to the U.S. Fortunately, they did not succeed. And when Ronald Reagan visited Parliament in 1982, he told the British parliamentarian, parliamentarians that, quote, if history teaches us anything, it teaches self-delusion in the face of unpleasant facts is folly. And that's advice that politicians everywhere should take to heart. No, they don't, uh, unfortunately. So what did we learn from that, kids? Well, just think, if um, if Trump is elected president, well, I guess he can go to Britain. He, he can say, you know what, I'm hopping on Air Force One. We're coming over there, and uh, I don't care what uh, uh, what, what your little jihadis say and in your little no-go zones. I'm coming over there anyway, so deal with it. Well, that, that's what that's what you get. You know, try to help people out. Well, you can't help these people. They don't even qualify as people. They're not human beings. They um, and like Osama Dakdok when he was on our show, it was last year sometime. I forget when. Um, but he, he, you know, he he was a Christian, came from a Christian home, a Christian family, and. They, um, well, he, he was born and raised in Egypt, and there was systematic discrimination against uh, Christians and any non-Muslims in Egypt. And you know, and he posed the question. He said, "Most Muslims don't know everything that's in the Quran. If they did, they probably wouldn't be Muslims." So, you know, <laughs> it's like, well, read the whole book. And then decide if you want to be a Muslim or not. Uh, you know, because lots of violence in that book, lots of hatred in that book. Uh, and then, you know, there's the whole theory, you know, we explored this on the show a while back that there is the possibility that Islam was created by the Roman Catholics to seize Jerusalem, that it was a made up religion. And I saw a meme earlier, um, right before we came on the air, about. You know, that kind of touched on that, you know, as far as Allah being like some kind of moon god or something like that. And and this so-called prophet, uh, the pedophile Muhammad, knew that. Uh, but what are you going to do? You know, the truth's out there. It's whether you want to accept it or not. Uh, just because something's the truth does not necessarily mean that you're going to like it. So there there you go. Um, what else we got here? Oh, this is funny. We're kind of skipping around here. I'm getting close to the top of the hour, and we're going to get into the Sultana disaster in the second hour. But I got to get all this news out of the way. Yeah, we um, weren't on the air yesterday, and um, well, we, well, we we were running a rebroadcast, and there's going to be more rebroadcast run um, uh, uh, for the foreseeable future because, um, like I said. I've got a business to run, and I can't do all. I can't be the one-man band with this, especially when I'm seeing no progress. I'm not complaining and whining. I'm just saying, I'm just telling you straight up what's what's happening with it. I don't have time for this. If people aren't going to um, get out and do what needs to be done, then hey, don't come to me for help. 
shit's already hitting the fan. Don't come to me for help. We warned you a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. You did nothing. So you're going to have to deal with it yourself. The only people that I'm going to help are the ones that stood up and fought by, way back when. Um, you know, information's been out there for a long time. Well, anyways, moving on. Uh, the global warming alarmists, they claim that weather satellites can't be trusted. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Uh, the global warming believers say that climate skeptics are guilty of wishful thinking and that they're letting politics and emotions get in the way of, quote, indisputable or indisputable scientific truths. And time and again, they say that climate skeptics, climate skeptics are cherry picking the data and are following for their own confirmation biases. Well, they may be right. Many of the people who believe in man-made global warming are scientists, and they're good at spotting those sort of things. They're also human, so they're just as likely to be guilty of cherry-picking and confirmation bias as anyone else. Well, uh, yeah, because they're getting paid to do it. And never more was this true than when the NOAA, the National Ocean, uh, whatever the hell, the, the ones that uh, predict the hurricanes, NOAA, announced earlier this year that the global warming, quote, pause didn't happen. And for the past 19 years, give or take, the official data has shown very little global warming which, as you might expect, has perturbed climate scientists ever since. Uh, and they conduct, these so-called scientists conducted a study that claimed the methods used to measure ocean temperature in the past were inaccurate. And after compensating the data to reflect newer measured techniques, they found that the world had been warming this whole time. Okay. And that the warming pause was a myth used by climate deniers to fool the public and themselves. Of course, they completely ignored the most comprehensive ocean temperature testing system known as the Argo Array, and the biggest adjustments to the data are conveniently made for 1998 to present-day time period. So how did they really come to this new conclusion? We don't know. Well, I do. They're getting paid <laughs> to, to say this. And many of the adjustments that were made are left unexplained, and when a congressman asked them to hand over the data and internal memos that were connected to the study, the NOAA uh, flat out refused. Well, that's not suspicious, is it? And the study also completely ignored satellite-derived temperature readings, which are widely regarded as the most accurate readings for finding global temperatures. And the satellite data also confirms the global warming pause. So what is a global warming believer to do when the data doesn't match the theories and models? Well, find a way to discredit the source of the data, of course. Now, you know, Alinsky tactics, right? And they've come up with a brilliant new plan here that uh, there's been no to explain why there's been no warming for 19 years. The satellites are lying. Yep, we know. They were programmed to lie. Um, <laughs> got a bunch of howls from 2001 Space Odyssey up there floating around, I guess. And to prove it, they come up with some sort of video starring such uh, trustworthy people uh, like Michael Hockey Stick Man. I don't know what that means. And Kevin Travesty Trenberth and Ben Santer. Uh, they're all paragons of scientific rectitude featured heavily in the ClimateGate emails. Oh, I've never heard of ClimateGate until just now. It's a well-produced and cleverly constructed video. I bet Al Gore's in behind that somehow and George Soros. Designed to look measured and reasonable rather than yet another shoddy hit job in the ongoing climate wars. And sundry, quote, experts adopting the tone of a, quote, more in sorrow than anger. Harvester of sorrow. 
I've got to listen to some Metallica here in a minute. Well, they gently expressed their reservations about the reliability of the satellite data, which right up until the release of the video has generally been accepted as the most accurate gauge of global temperatures. Yeah, not to mention those pictures that we saw of, um, what was it, the South Pole or North Pole? One of the poles got a hell of a lot bigger. You know, and it was 2007, you know, man, bear, pig, gore says, well, polar caps will be gone by 2013. Notions will have risen uh, 20 feet. Yeah, so that's why he uh, bought a house in Malibu after he divorced that wife of his. And remember, his wife, you know, any of you musicians listening, his wife's the one that censored your art. Remember the PMRC back in the 80s? Well, there you go. Well, anyways... There's a video in there, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to watch it. Uh, what the hell do I want to watch that for? I get a bad enough headache doing this show, uh, reading this shit. I don't need to watch the videos to make it worse. Well, um, we're going to take a break. Um, and when we get back, whoops. And when we get back, uh, we are going to get into the Sultana disaster. And I've got other news um, to get to, but. Um, uh, I gotta, I've been wanting to do this uh, because it was interesting to me. You might find it interesting. I don't know. Don't care. All right, stay tuned. Stay tuned for the second half of the Wake Up Mission Show.
Welcome back to the Wake Up Mission Show. And we are back. Damn, I love Metallica's instrumentals. I don't. There's very few bands that write instrumentals like they do. It's great stuff. All righty. Well, we're going to move on uh, and get to the Sultana disaster. Uh, for those of you that may know or may not know, it was it was a steamship. Uh, you know, back well, back like in the uh, late you know in 1860s. Uh, well, anyways. Uh, this is uh, this is what happened, and then there there's reasons for why it happened. Um, and we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, the most terrible steamboat disaster in history was probably the loss of the Sultana in 1865. Some 1,700 returning Union veterans died, uh, but it got very few headlines. Um, it was late in April of 1865, and the Mississippi River stood at flood stage. And four years of war had ruined many of the levees and dikes, and in the lower reaches of the river, uh, the water was over the banks for miles. Uh, but in the towns and cities of the lower valley, the high water was not only an incident, uh, and the dominant feeling was one of relief uh, for because the Civil War at last was over. And some people call it the War of Northern Aggression. Well, we're not going to get into that part of it. Well, anyways... Um, There'd be no more fighting or destruction. Um, wartime bitterness and sadness might linger, but at least there was peace. And the war, the war weary Union soldiers that were in the South had one thought in mind: they wanted to go home. And Vicksburg had uh, been turned into a great recreation, rep, 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 whatever uh, center, and there were there were thousands of. Uh, of worn-out men in faded blue uniforms, uh, a lot of Union prisoners of war um, that were just released from the prison compounds like Andersonville, and they were waiting in waiting in Vicksburg uh, for transportation um, to go home. And more than any other soldiers, uh, they were impatient. To get, they they were impatient to get started. Um, prison camps in that war were really hard places in the North and South alike, and many men died. Uh, died in them of camp diseases, bad housing, and simple malnutrition. And most of the survivors were little better than semi-invalids. Um, and uh, basically, all they could think about, uh, they just wanted to get home, uh, where they could see their families, get out of those uniforms, get some rest and some care, recuperation, and, and food that they needed really badly. And most of them would go by river. And as April had come to an end, a huge con contingent was slated to travel on the Sultana. And it was a typical side wheeler built in Cincinnati in 1863 for the lower Mississippi cotton trade. And she was registered at 1,719 tons and carried a crew of 85. And for two years, she had been on a regular run between New Orleans and St. Louis. And from War Department records, it's known that she frequently carried Army personnel up and down the river, and one dispatch of uh, March the 20th of 1864 showed her carrying a contingent of the 2nd Missouri Colored Troops. Um, well, well, the Sultana left New Orleans uh, April the 21st, 1865, on what looked like a regular run. She had from 75 to 100 cabin passengers and cargo, which included uh, 100 hogsheads of sugar and 100 head of assorted livestock. And by law, 
she could carry 376 people, including the crew. Uh, she was commanded by Captain J.C. Mason of St. Louis, who had a reputation as a good, careful riverman. And on the evening of April the 24th, the Sultana made a regular stop at Vicksburg to take on passengers and cargo. And after she had tied up, an engineer made a disturbing discovery that the boilers were leaking uh, rather badly. Um, and it was determined to lay up briefly, draw fires, and repair the boilers and machinery before going upriver to the scheduled stops in Memphis, Cairo, Evansville, Louisville, and Cincinnati. So the repair gang got to work, and the job was done uh, faster than had been anticipated. Well, and meanwhile, the whole time, uh, the Sultana was taking on passengers. It was basically a stampede. A uh, large number of repatriated uh, Union prisoner POWs were to go north on this steamer, and the men were so desperately eager to start that the authorities decided to not, not to make out the muster rolls in advance, as usual. Instead, the rolls would be made out on board after the vessel had left Vicksburg. And boarding the vessel for the voyage home seemed to put new life into the uh, XPOWs. And as weak as most of them were, they were shouting, singing, and jesting as they came aboard, as lighthearted a crowd as ever came up for gangplank. Um, they came in almost unimaginable numbers and far beyond uh, the Sultana's rated capacity. And our Army reports do not give the exact number, but somewhere between 1,800 and 2,000 people. In addition, two companies of soldiers under arms came aboard. And altogether, there were probably some 2,300 people on the steamer when the lines were cast off. Naturally, the boat, the boat was uh, unbelievably crowded, and, and the soldiers were marching onto the hurricane deck until all available space was filled, and they packed the steamer from top, from top to the bottom hull, cabins to Texas deck, and even the pilot house. And almost literally, the steamer could not have carried another human being. Well, somehow the Sultana got clear of the wharf and went, went on its way upstream, uh, breast any current made stronger than usual by the river's flood stage. And Captain Mason seemed a bit worried. Uh, he cautioned the men not to crowd to one side of the boat when a landing was made because there were so many of them, it might cause uh, a lot of trouble. But for 48 hours after casting off uh, the Vicksburg Wharf, the, Sult the Sultana went on without any trouble. It made a few scheduled stops, and on the evening of April 26th of 1865, docked at Memphis. Uh, and uh, some of the passengers disembarked there, and the hogshead of sugar were unloaded, and some of the stronger ex-prisoners helped in with the work to earn a bit of money. And a number of the soldiers went ashore to see the sights, and some of these, not knowing how lucky they were, saw so many that they didn't get back didn't get back by uh, by sailing time. And while the Sultana was at Memphis, a leaky boiler gave more trouble, and again the repair crew called in and uh, the leak was repaired. And it was close to midnight when the packet uh, let go her mooring lines and crossed the river to take on coal. And after this was loaded, the Sultana went on upriver bound for Cairo. And that's not Cairo, Egypt, by the way. Uh, I forget what state that's in. But anyways, most of the servicemen aboard were to disembark. Current was strong, and the Sultana was overloaded, uh, fearfully overloaded, with six times as many passengers as she had been designed to carry. And the big paddle wheels thrashed the water, straining against the current, against the powerful current. One of the ship's officers later recalled that as they left Memphis, he had remarked, 
I'd give all the interest I have in this steamer if we were safely landed at Cairo. And, uh, you know, it was late at night, so the woman supposed that the soldiers were dozing off, um, you know, two or three days more, and they would be home again. Then they could sleep and eat and rest, and um, the terrible POW experiences they had could begin to fade into their memories. And, you know, the war was over, just a few more hours on this crowd of steamboat, and they would be home. Well, midnight had passed, and the Sultana kept going. Um, and by two in the morning, she was just a few miles north of Memphis, um, and she was making progress, but it was slow because the current was really powerful. And the boilers were tired, and the load was much greater than usual. And Sultana swung round a bend and began to labor her way past a cluster of islands known as the Hen and Chickens. Huh. Well, then it happened. The, the, the leaky boilers gave up. Um, they, they really gave up. Uh, they quit holding the heavy pressure of steam and exploded with a tremendous crash that was heard all the way back to Memphis. And it sent an orange-colored flame boiling up into the black sky and a sudden stabbing pillar of fire that lit up uh, the black swirling river was visible for miles. Well, back at, Vent back at Memphis, the watch on the USS Grosbeak, <clears throat> and that was a river gunboat, saw the light and heard the noise and the skipper was called, and he had them cast off the mooring lines, and the Grosbeak uh, went, went, went up the river. Um, and other steamers on the Memphis waterfront did the same, um, you know, you know, hurrying against the strong current to try to get there and give help, you know, any kind of help they could. And, well, it was a losing race. Uh, the ship had been blown half apart by the terrific force of the explosion, and hundreds of... Um, these sleeping soldiers were blown bodily into the water, snugly asleep one moment, and then hurling through the air into the cold black water the next. And with them uh, went great chunks of twisted machinery, a shower of red-hot coals that hissed and spurted as they hit the river, and great fragments of wood, furniture, railings, deck beams. Half the steamboat had simply disintegrated. Uh, one man was said to have been thrown more than 200 feet. Um but um, And by some freak, he was not seriously hurt and landed in the river and floundered a few yards away to a floating tree and clung to it and was picked up uh, by a boat, um, picked up by the uh, Grosbeak um, several miles downstream. And three other men were blown clear of the ship and a long piece of the afterdeck under them. Uh, deck and men made a square landing 75 feet from the wrecked vessel. And dazed and still no more than half awake, they clung to the wreckage until it floated down to Memphis, where some rescue boats saved them. But it was just a few of the returning prisoners had fared that well. The water was really cold, and many of them couldn't swim. And there was little wreckage to cling to, and they died by the hundreds in the water near the wreck. You know, they had been half starved for months and were in no physical shape to swim, even if they knew how. <clears throat> One man recalled afterward, quote, when I got about 300 yards away from the boat clinging to a heavy plank, the whole heaven seemed to be lighted up by the conflagration. Hundreds of my comrades were fastened down by the timbers of the deck and had to burn while the water seemed to be one solid mass of human beings struggling with the waves. The fire for fire followed the explosion, and the blast scattered hot coals from the furnaces all over the midship section of the steamer, and in moments the disabled vessel was on fire. The upper works were all collapsed, 
there was a huge gaping hole in the middle of the hurricane deck, and the flames were taking hold everywhere. To stay aboard could be worse than to be in the river, even if a man was too weak to swim. So men who had not been knocked into the water went there um, of their own accord, willing to face anything rather than the spreading flames. And one man who clung to the wrecked upper deck wrote afterward, quote, On looking down and out into the river, I could see men jumping from all parts of the boat into the water until it seemed black with men, their heads bobbing up and down like corks, and then disappearing beneath the turbulent waters, never to appear again. Well, the Sultana, of course, was totally out of control by now and was drifting helplessly downstream, and the deck supporting the main rank of passenger cabins where the officers were housed collapsed at one end, uh, forming a horrible steep ramp down to, down which into the hottest fire slid screaming men in a tangle of wreckage. The huge twin smokestacks, uh, the hallmark of every Mississippi packet boat, tottered uncertainly and then came crashing down, pinning men under them and holding them for the flames. The superstructure was falling in, and the whole midship section <clears throat> was nothing better than a floating bed of coals. Survivors clung desperately to the bow and stern sections, which the fire had not yet reached, and among them, um, um, panic-born, there started to cry, the boat's sinking. Well, many voices took up the cry as if it were a death chant, and men who were as yet unhurt began to throw themselves into the water, thrashing about frantically for some bit of wreckage that might help them stay afloat. Well, somewhere aboard the Sultana was a ten-foot alligator in a stout wooden cage, a man-eater, according to soldier gossip. And one soldier bayoneted the reptile, rolled the wooden crate over the side, jumped in after it, and hung on to it until a passing boat rescued him the hell would they be having an alligator for? Well, anyways, moving on. Hundreds of horribly born, uh, burned and scalded men remained aboard the, the drafting hulk. Some had the strength and presence of mind to wrench doors or window blinds from their, hinged, from their hinges and toss them overboard and jump in after them. Others simply huddled in the diminishing spaces that the flames had not yet reached and shouted, prayed, or screamed helplessly for aid. Uh, someone had gotten the steamer's lifeboat into the water, and desperate floating men tried to struggle aboard. And so far, the flames had not reached the bow, and there most of the survivors were jammed. Then the wind shifted, or perhaps uh, the drafting boat swung around and took it from another direction, and the flames leapt, leaped forward. Most of the men preferred drowning to uh, being burned alive and left into the water. And one man remembered, quote, the men were who were afraid to take to the water, could be seen clinging to the sides of the bow of the boat until they were singed off like flies. Shrieks and cries for mercy were all that could be heard, uh, and that awful morning reminded me of the stories of doomsday of my childhood. Well, at last the boat uh, struck a small island where there was a little grove of trees, and some of those who were still aboard jumped ashore with ropes um, and made the, the hulk fast. Uh, 20 or 30 more then, then managed to fabricate uh, a makeshift raft uh, from broken timbers and cut loose just in time. And slowly, the worst of the flames had died down, and finally, with the mooring uh, ropes still holding what was left of uh, the Sultana, gave up the hopeless struggle and sank, with the great noise of hissing and a huge pillar of smoke and steam rising towards the sky. 
When the cold dawn light came, survivors dotted the river all the way to Memphis. Uh, they clung to logs, rafts, spars, barrels, sections of railing, and other bits of wood. And all the rescue uh, craft in Memphis uh, put out what they could, uh, hauling half-dead men out of the cold river. And one former Confederate soldier in a small boat is said to have rescued 15 Union soldiers single-handedly. And hundreds of men were found on both shores of the Mississippi clinging to trees of driftwood, and many of them badly burned and without clothing. Well, together, between 500 and 600 men were taken to uh, the Memphis hospitals, and some 200 of them died soon afterward, either from burns or exposure and general debility. And for many days after the disaster, a barge was sent out each morning to pick up dead bodies, and each night it would come back to Memphis with the gruesome cargo. And so the Sultana was gone, and it remained to count the dead and to try to find out just why the disaster had happened. And no definite count of the casualties was possible because there did not exist any really complete list of the number of men aboard at the time. And estimates of the number killed ranged from 1,500 to 1,900, um, and probably a median figure of 1,700 would be about right. In any case, one of the most terrible steamship disasters in history, if not indeed the worst of all, had taken place. And of the few hundred lucky survivors who finally got home, a few uh, a few formed an association called uh, the Sultana Survivors Society, which held annual meetings uh, for many years. And there were rumors about the cause of the explosion, including a wholly baseless story, baseless story that some ventral ex-Confederate had put explosives in explosives in the in the cold. Uh, and uh, a high-ranking officer of the Army in a report on the disaster made this observation, quote, It is the common opinion among engineers that an explosion of steam boilers is impossible when they have the proper quantity of water in them, but boilers may burst from an overpressure of steam when they are full of water owing to some defective part of the iron, in which there is generally no harm done than giving way of the defective part in the consequent escape of steam. One engineer who is said um, to be the most reliable on the river says that even in such a case, the great power of the steam, having once found a yielding place, tears everything before it, producing the effect of an explosion, and his view seems to be reasonable. What is usually understood as the explosion of the boiler is caused by a sudden development of an intense steam by the water coming in contact with the red-hot iron which produces an effect like the firing of gunpowder in a mine and the destruction of the boilers in the boat that carries them is the consequence. Well, all of which tells little enough. Uh, what is known that the Sultana, uh, fearfully overloaded, was struggling against an abnormally strong current with defective boilers exploded, and the, re the wrecked ship then took fire and most of the men aboard were killed. And uh, queerly enough, uh, this overwhelming catastrophe got only a moderate amount of newspaper attention at the time. The nation's mind was fixed on the closing scenes of the Civil War or War of Northern Aggression. Uh, General Lee had surrendered. Uh, General Joseph e. Johnston was surrendering on the day on the day before, and the country had a new president. Um, Lincoln had been dead eleven days when this happened. 
and was beginning to sorry about the problem of rebuilding the sadly shattered Union. And the Army, naturally, was not anxious to publicize the accident. And anyway, the country's most influential papers were all published in the East, and the Sultana's victims were all from the, mid, the Midwest, far away and across the mountains. There was an official inquiry um, productive of a mass of documents to which nobody in particular paid much attention, and there the affair ended in one of the worst maritime disasters in uh, history, but one which had a hard time finding its way into the history books. And one can hardly help wondering what the handful of shore-going soldiers who missed their boat at Memphis um, might have thought about it afterward. Well, there were some contributors uh, to this. Uh, this one is from um, dated, uh, this was from July of 1996 uh, from a guy named John Fegan. He says, my great great-grandfather Winfield Scott Pottle survived uh, this sinking also. He had just been released from Andersonville. He was a member, a member of the 54th Ohio Volunteers known as Platts. Oh, boy. Zouaves. Z-O-U-A-V-E-S. Zouaves. And he was taken prisoner while trying to uh, protect General Sherman. And he was attacked by the Confederate cavalry and hit in the head with a saber. Well, after being taken prisoner, he was first sent to Libby Prison because of suspicion that he was a spy. And then he was later taken to Bell Island and then to Andersonville. He was there when the when the providential spring burst forth. He ran for water and was pushed over the deadline where he was shot with a couple of companions who were killed. He was left to suffer for hours until his comrades were given permission to retrieve him. Well, several years ago, I visited Andersonville with my sons and the Providential Spring. I felt a sense of joy that he survived and that his descendants could actually play in the stream where his blood ran. And then another uh, writer. Uh, this is from uh, July of 1997. Um, well, it just has an email address. It doesn't have the person's name. Oh, it's Billy Joe Richter. Richter, I'm sorry. Um, um, her, I guess, uh, great, great great-grandfather, uh, his name was Wyatt, Wyatt Bailey. He had served in the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry uh, in the Union Army for about six months and uh, until he was captured in Athens, Alabama. And he served as, another six months as a POW at uh, Cahaba. And he also survived the Sultana disaster. Um, and his name is listed in uh, Selecker's book, Disaster on the Mississippi, as Wyatt Bailey. Uh, he was my great-great-grandfather, and I'm seeking any additional information uh, which anyone may have on him prior to the Civil War. Uh, what was his wife's name? Where was he born? Parents and all that stuff. So, Billy Joe, go, uh, go to genealogy.com uh, or ancestry.com. You might be able to uh, find, find that. Um, uh, well, anyways, um, that that's what happened. Now, I, I found some audio because there's a guy named Reuben Hatch who was um, involved in this, and his brother, um, I can't remember, I think his brother's name was like O.M. or O.A. Hatch or something like that. Um, well, he was a, a friend of Abraham Lincoln's, and, you know, they, you know, and in the documentary that I was watching, uh, 
you know, there, you know, the theory, you know, the prevailing theory at the time was that um, uh, uh, so, someone in the Confederacy had done had had blown the ship up, which turned out not to be true. And uh, the the documentary I watched, um, they uh, basically, you know, they went back and and what they what they found. Uh, was that this guy Reuben Hatch? His brother was good friends with Abraham Lincoln, and and Reuben Hatch, um, you know, and and for anyone that thinks like you know cronyism started uh, with the Bush regime or the Obama regime, well, no, it didn't. Cronyism has been going on ever since there was more than two people walking around on the planet. Uh, but anyways going to get into some audio here uh and uh it's about the sultana disaster and, and these are readings by kate quinn and um their personal she found out a lot of good information so uh, uh there, there's two audios here we're going to go ahead and get in get into these uh, hell we're running out of time this has been a fast two hours wow all right check it out can easily recount the many dreadful stories told by survivors, but that would spoil your reading of the great books on the subject. So instead, I'm going to recount the stories of the men, uh, women men, some of whom lived to tell their tales of that horrible experience, and some who didn't. Um, I'll talk about the books that that I recommend on this subject, but the one that I uh, I particularly like, Jean found online, it's free, it's under Google Books, it's called The Smoked Yak. And it's not about the Sultana as much as it's about life in the prison. So that's that's one of the rather moving books, uh, startling books, I should say. Okay, Anthony Craig was a tailor in Wheeling. He had four children, and he enlisted when he was 44, then re-enlisted in Battery D, 1st West Virginia Light Artillery in 1864, and he listed his age as 37. He drowned after the explosion of the Sultana. William Crudis was from Newcastle, England. He was naturalized in Wheeling in 1848 and listed his occupation as a teamster. He enlisted on March 12, 1864, but apparently didn't appear for service. He was arrested and imprisoned in the Athenaeum, then sent to his unit on March 13th. He was captured near Lynchburg and sent to Andersonville. According to an article in the Memphis Argus dated April 28, 1865, William Crudus was, quote, picked up while almost in the agonies of death. He was holding to the limb of a partially submerged tree with such force that the limb had to be cut before they could get his body onto a raft. He was taken by a local man to his house, but died before he could reach the hospital. He was wearing an identification label, which someone must have written for him, as he was only able to sign his enlistment papers with an X. Among the lucky survivors was Henry C. Foster. He was a brickmaker. His father was well known in Wheeling as a stagecoach agent and held that position until the coming of the railroad to Wheeling in 1852. While home on furlough, he married Margaret Boring, whose father was a close friend of his. He was captured at the Battle of Newmarket and sent to Andersonville. 
He was rescued five hours after the explosion. After the war, he told Sarah Jones, he took Sarah Jones as his wife without divorcing his first wife. He applied for a war pension in January of 1886 and stated, I incurred scurvy about three months after the time I was captured from want of proper food and exposure while in prison. He went on to say that he was presently working as a carpenter, but he incurred debility or weakness of the whole system, which he blamed on both the imprisonment and the disaster. He was denied a pension, and he died in 1890 of pneumonia, and he's buried in Mount Wood Cemetery. His widow, Sarah, applied for the pension, and in a statement by a fellow officer, it was reported that he, quote, he had married Dot Boring when she was known as a common prostitute. He further stated that he must have been drunk or crazy to have married that woman, and that he had been robbed of his money, and he charged her and her father with the same. He said while he was in the service that he would never live with that woman. A statement from Doc Boring Foster said she was 14 when she married Henry and that her father told her that Henry had, quote, nursed me when I was a child. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I think it means he was her babysitter, but you know, she was 14, though. <clears throat> a little strange. Sarah was denied the pension. George D. Loy was yet another wheeling survivor of the Sultana. He served with Carlos Battery and was captured at Hanging Rock Gap in Virginia in 1864 and sent to Andersonville. After the war, he worked as a blacksmith and machinist at the Bel Air Nail Mill, but dismissed from his job for intemperance. He had a paralytic stroke in 1872 and he was treated for delirium tremens, a symptom of alcoholic abuse. He was only 35 when he died, and he's buried at Mount Wood. In a letter home from Camp Parole, that's what he called it, it was actually Camp Fisk, um, dated April 1865, George wrote, We have had a hard time in the Confederacy and suffered everything that man could possible do from hunger, cold, and thirst, and since last month, one year ago, there has died in Andersonville Stockade Prison alone 13,000 Union men. George Roy jumped into the water after the explosion on the Sultana and spent about three and a half hours in the water before being rescued. He was unconscious and was taken to Washington Hospital in Memphis. From there, he wrote his family, everything was confused. Hundreds were blown high in the air and came down burned and mangled beyond description. Men were seen tying life preservers around their wives and children and throwing them overboard in hopes of their being saved. Around the boat in the water was a mass of human beings, some in their death struggles, drowning others who otherwise might have reached shore. The screams and groans of men, women, and children on that ill-fated boat I shall never forget. George mentioned a slight wound from a piece of wood as a result of the explosion, but later the letter in which he wrote this was changed to read a severe wound, and a tube was placed before the three and a half hours that he spent in the water. Uh, he was treated for a stroke, a rheumatism of his left side. He died in 1877. His widow was denied the pension. Alexander Manners, which is 22 when he enlisted in the fall of 1861. He was captured at the Battle of Newmarket in May of 1861.
before a consent to Andersonville, he died as a result of the explosion. James McKendry's residence in Wheeling can only be assumed from his site of enlistment in Company G of the 1st Regiment of West Virginia Light Artillery in Wheeling in May of 1861. He was a blacksmith and toolmaker. At Salem, Virginia, now West Virginia, in January of 1863, he was injured by an explosion of a case on full of ammunition. He was hurled against a tree and taken to Grafton Hospital, where he remained for four months. When released, he re-enlisted, this time with Battery D, 1st West Virginia Light Artillery. He was captured at Hunter's Raid on Lynchburg, Virginia, and sent to Andersonville. When the Sultana exploded, he suffered injuries to his bones, limbs, a fractured skull, left temple, right shoulder, and arm. He was at Washington Hospital in Memphis for two months, was discharged in Clarksburg, and moved to Chicago, where he lived in the soldier's home. His pension application was dropped when he died in 1893. Okay. That was some of the uh, personal stories. There is a part two to this, but I don't know if I'm going to have time for that because there's some more stuff regarding this uh, particular uh, incident. Now, uh, the guy that was put in charge, you know, and this is where, you know, it's like it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? Well, uh, Abe Lincoln had a friend named Isaiah Sam Hatch. Well, Isaiah Hatch had a brother named Reuben, uh, and what I saw on the um, documentary, Reuben Hatch was is incompetent and unfit for, you know, the guy the guy wasn't qualified uh, to shovel crap out of somebody's back. Well, anyways, he kept getting appointments and special favors from Lincoln because of his brother, and even the Union generals did not like this guy. They knew he was incompetent. Um, and they kept, you know, the guy was like, he'd get appointed a title, a rank, and then, you know, come to find out he was not fit for the rank or title. And then he would, um, wouldn't show up for work and they would, uh, fire him. And then, then old, older brother, Isaiah would, uh, call Abe. Well, he wouldn't call him. They would write or go visit or whatever, however they're communicated. And then Abe would go back and say, no, you can put this guy back to work and give him this rank. Well, anyways, um, these are, these are the politicians. Uh, these are some connections. Um, and they concluded on the documentary that had Abe Lincoln not been assassinated, that this particular disaster, uh, was going to be dumped in his lap because, you know, it, he was indirectly responsible. Uh, but anyways, uh, this is uh, these are some excerpts. Um, quote, it is next to impossible for me to leave here now. I received your letter and enclosures. My uh, judgment is that we must never sell old friends to buy old enemies. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Lincoln had wrote Isaiah Hatch in March of 1858 as the critical Senate race with uh, Stephen Douglas had heated up. And he goes on to say, quote, let us have a state convention in which we can have full consultation and till which let us stand firm, making no committals as to strange and new combinations. This is the sum of all the counsel I could give uh, if with you, and you are at liberty to show to discreet friends. Well, like many of Lincoln's friends, Hatch had a habit of playing 
recurring roles at crucial junctures in the life of Abraham Lincoln. Well, John G. Nicolay had helped uh, elect his fellow Pike County Republican to the office to the office of Secretary of State in 1856. And according to Nicolay, who had become Mr. Lincoln's campaign assistant and White House secretary, Hatch's office was the center of Springfield political activity in the years before uh, Lincoln had left for Washington. Uh, quote, from the spring of 1857 to 1860, I was clerk in the office of Honorable O.M. Hatch, Secretary of State of Illinois, who in that capacity occupied a large and well-appointed room in the old state house in Springfield. Uh, the state library, of which the secretary had charge, was in an adjoining room, also large and commodious, which by common usage was used by all the political parties when assembled at state conventions or during sessions of the legislature as a political caucus room. The entry through the secretary's main office, um, he wrote, and he goes on to say, quote, this office was therefore, in effect, the state political headquarters and a common rendezvous for prominent Illinois politicians. And Mr. Lincoln was, of course, a frequent visitor, and when he came, was always the center of an animated and interested group. And it was there during the years mentioned that I made his acquaintance. All the election records were kept by the Secretary of State, and I, as Mr. Hatch's principal clerk, had frequent occasion to show Mr. Lincoln, who was an assiduous student of election tables, the latest returns, or the completed record books. Um, and Samuel R. Weed, a St. Louis reporter who had visited Mr. Lincoln on Election Day in 1860, wrote, quote, I found him in a private room attached to the office of the Illinois Secretary of State, which he had occupied as sort of headquarters for several months. And when I entered, he was chatting with three or four friends as calmly and amiable as if he had um, started on a picnic. And in this apartment, he had received many of the men afterward, distinguished in the councils of the nation and also on her battlefields. His manner was quiet, unaffected, and gracious. And when I informed him of my errand, he smiled and hoped I would manage to enjoy myself. Now, Hatch not only aided Mr. Lincoln, Mr. Lincoln aided the Secretary of State. There was a complicated problem with some bonds issued by the state of Illinois. I went at once to Lincoln, and Lincoln came immediately up to my office and sat down and heard Mac's story entirely through without saying a word. Then getting up and stretching himself, he exclaimed with his emphatic gesture of doubling one of his fists, I'll be damned if that should be, be done. And Hatch concluded, I was sent to New York, and the bonds were taken up and canceled. According to William H. Henderson, quote, the first effort in his behalf as president aspirant was the action taken by his friends at a meeting held in the state house in early 1860s in the rooms of O.M. Hatch, then Secretary of State. And besides Hatch, there were President Norman B. Judd, Chairman of the Republican State Committee, Ebenezer Peck, Jackson Grimshaw, and others of equal prominence in the party. We all expressed a personal preference for Mr. Lincoln, relates one who was a participant um, in the meeting, uh, that was Jackson Grimshaw, as the Illinois candidate for presidency, and asked him if his name might be used at once in connection with the nomination and election. And with his characteristic modesty, he doubted whether he could get the nomination, even if he wished, and asked until the next morning to answer us whether his name might be announced. And late the next day, he authorized us. 
if we thought proper to do so, to place them in the field. Well, the relations between Hatch and the Lincolns were social as well as political. Hatch was a regular visitor at the Lincoln household. Quote, Mr. Hatch made one of his social, social agreeable calls last evening, uh, Miss Lincoln wrote to a friend in October of 1859. He inquired very particularly for you. Um, no sign of his marrying. And the next day, Miss Lincoln wrote Hatch in her unique run-on style, by way of impressing upon your mind that friends must not be entirely forgotten, I would be pleased to have you wander up our way to see us this evening, although I have not the inducements of meeting company to offer you, or Mr. Lincoln to welcome you, yet if you are to disregard, I should like to see you. In a letter from Mary Todd Lincoln to Hatch in 1862, she wrote, Two or three of our companions de, de voyage what? Yeah. will pass an hour or two uh, with us this eve. If Mr. Taylor and yourself will wander in this direction about 8 o'clock, we will be very much pleased to see you. And the invitations continued when the Lincolns moved to Washington. Um, and Hatch found numerous ways to support Mr. Lincoln. He went with him to Council Bluffs, Iowa in August of 1859 to look over real estate owned by Norman Judd, for which Mr. Lincoln had loaned $3,000. And Hatch also participated in a group that had helped fund incidental expenses for the presidential campaign. So, um, as you can see, um, I'm going to skip down because uh, in this, uh, you know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, social calls and you know let's go hang out and whatever uh i think i think uh i think uh miss lincoln was trying to set hatch up with one of her friends or something i don't know well anyways um but he had a brother named reuben and reuben had got a job uh according to this brother reuben got a job caused him some embarrassment he was charged with fraud for actions taken as a paymaster in grant's army and, uh, Nick, and Nicolay wrote in February 1862, Jack Grimshaw had been here a week or 10 days trying to ascertain and straighten out the troubles Reuben Hatch had somehow gotten himself into over his quartermaster's affairs. A few months later, Nicolay inquired into the charges against him for a second arrest, and they were eventually dropped. And then Reuben Hatch appointed assistant, he was appointed assistant quartermaster of volunteers for southeast Missouri. And the White House desires to keep O.M. Hatch happy can be seen in a letter from presidential aide John G. Nicolay to Hatch in July. He said he had, quote, instructed John Hay to tell the president which of the two is to be the man as soon as I can see you and telegraph him. I wish you would have your mind finally made up about, about it when I see you next Sunday or Monday. I don't think the appointments for Illinois will be made before that time. And as soon as I find out from you, I will telegraph the right John Hay and he will lay the final decision before the president. Um, so that's what it was. The, the, the guy, uh, 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 Reuben Hatch, basically stolen money. Well, anyways, uh, this was another scheme that Hatch was involved with. And how he got to be quartermaster, um, uh, you know, was because of that. You know, he, he got appointed to these ranks and titles and, was stealing and doing all kinds of shenanigans, but um, it goes back to Reuben Hatch. Um, he was charged with providing food and shelter to the, all the thousands of Union POWs that had been released from Andersonville and Cahaba 
that were shuttled to Vicksburg to be boarded on the north, northbound steamboats. And, you know, the soldiers, they didn't give a shit which one. You know, they just wanted to get on one and get home, right? Well, uh, Hatch and the Sultana Captain Cass Moss, they did care what boat they got onto. Um, Mason's boat belonged to the Merchants and People's Line, which had contracted with the government for the transportation of freight and troops. And financially, he was struggling and had every incentive to exploit the, federal, the Fed's offer of up to $10 per soldier as much as possible. And one of the first people he met in Vicksburg was Hatch, from whom he demanded a full boat's worth of passengers for his trip. Uh, a lot of Sultana experts believe that around this time, Mason bribed Hatch, who would have uh, been more than gain, um, because, quote, Vicksburg was essentially a cesspool of corrupt and incompetent officials in 1865, said Memphis lawyer Jerry Potter, who studied the disaster for 37 years. And even in this climate, Hatch stood out. Uh, quote, on a scale of 1 to 10, being most corrupt, Reuben Hatch would be a 12. And he wrote a book about it, uh, uh, this guy, um, Jerry Potter, and he lays out a series of mishaps and highly shady behavior which had marked Hatch's career. And every misstep along his way, his older brother, Isaias, was there to pick him up, often with Abraham Lincoln's assistance. He had helped steer Lincoln's failed U.S. Senate campaign and, pres and then his successful presidential run. And, uh, you know, the pull he had came in handy in the early in the Civil War. Captain Reuben Hatch had gotten himself into a fine mess as the assistant quartermaster in Illinois after allegedly skimming profits from government lumber purchases. He reportedly dumped the incriminated ledgers in the Ohio River. But alas, they washed up on the bank and were found. And as the investigation unfolded, it was also reported Hatch had illegally sold Army supplies for personal gain and pocketed even more money off a fraud involving the charter of steamboats for the government. Well, the evidence was overwhelming, and he was on the brink of being court-martialed. So in 1862, Isaias wrote to Lincoln telling him the charges against his little brother were frivolous and without the shadow of foundation in fact. And Lincoln then forwarded the letter to a judge advocate general, assuring him that Isaiah Hatch was a, a good, true man, and that, quote, I also personally know Captain R.B. Hatch and have never before heard anything against his character. So that's uh, some cronyism right there for you. You know, it didn't start with Obama or Bush or Clinton or Bush one. It's been going on for a long time. So what we've learned from this is it's not what you know, it's who you know. Uh, so, you know, political corruption, uh, cronyism, been going on for a long time. And unfortunately, because of that, because of incompetence, corruption, cronyism, people die. And no one pays, and, and there's generally no consequences. You know, kind of like, you know, like Benghazi with Hillary Clinton, um, Fast and Furious with Eric Holder, and... Uh, President Obama, this stuff goes on all the time, and it's been going on probably since there was more than two people walking around on the planet. So that's uh, kind of the history lesson today. Now, um, we're working on getting some guests coming up here in the future, uh, and as I said at the top of the show, 
Uh, we're we're going to be doing a lot of rebroadcast uh, until we can get Shaleen back on a full-time basis because I can't do all this on my own. If If I was making money doing this show, then it would be a different story. But I've got a business to run. We rely strictly on donations, which we do not get. And, you know, here I am being PBS, right? Uh, or uh, what's that? One? The uh, public, yeah, don't, you know, don't be a looky-loo. You know, if you'd like to make a donation, we would greatly appreciate it. You can contact us at staff at the wake up mission show.com and we'll give you, we'll, we'll, um, we will uh, give you instructions on how to uh, make a donations to make this program impossible. And we also rely on our businesses, which none of our listeners have bothered to um, investigate. I don't know. We haven't seen any results from it. Even the free ones. I know a few of you out there that were whining and complaining about needing income, didn't have anything to invest. I personally took time out of my schedule to offer you a free way to make money and you couldn't bother you couldn't even be bothered with it. That's why I say, don't whine to me, I'm not gonna help you. I tried helping you. You didn't have time for that, but you had time to send ten, twelve emails a day bitching about the government when you could have been taking advantage of the opportunities that I offered personally that you didn't take advantage of. Well, that's on you. That ain't on me. Well, anyways, we're out of time for today. Um, don't know about tomorrow, but pretty much I'm sure it's going to be rebroadcast. So I got business. I've got work to do. I've got to earn the income. I got bills to pay. Just like you, I got bills too. And again, I ain't getting paid to do this. And I'm not going to, I just ain't, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to waste my time. I got things to do, things that I want to do. Uh, so anyways, that's it. Hope you all have a great night. And uh, we'll see you when we see you. don't know when that's going to be. Uh, when we get some guests in, uh, yeah, we'll be live. Music Revolution Friday will be live. But uh, till then, it's going to be a lot of rebroadcasts. Have a good night. Thank you for spending your time with us on the Wake Up Mission Show. el fútbol? Get unlimited data from AT&T when you have AT&T Wireless and Direct TV. Keep up with the game all you want. Stream and surf the web on our best unlimited plan ever. AT&T, mobilizing your world. Must have eligible TV service. If not eligible, AT&T will move you to a new plan and overage charges may apply. After 22 gigabytes of data usage, AT&T may slow speeds. TV content varies by device, location, and package. Coverage not available everywhere. Monthly charges, usage, and other restrictions apply. See store for plan details. Firing up the grill, having a picnic, going to a game, or the beach? Stop by Acme Markets for juicier Lancaster brand meats for the grill. Fresher cut fruits and vegetables, tastier desserts from our bakery, and all of your snack needs. Mix, match, and save on fresh blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, or strawberries. Six-ounce packages are buy one, get one free. And Purdue chicken drumsticks, thighs, or whole frying chickens, three pounds or more, only 99 cents a pound. 
Acme, your new favorite local supermarket.